Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today as every week by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Last week, Simon, we said, would there be a turn in the markets? Was there any hope to see after what's been a pretty relentless, poor set of weeks this year? And uh, well, what has happened this week? Tell us, uh, tell us what's going on. Well, the first four trading days of the week, we're recording this as always around Friday lunchtime, uh, the investment company sector finds itself in negative territory, down about 0.9%. And that compares with decline for the wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share Index, down about 0.2%. However, even as we record this, the market seems to be going a little bit better, probably up about 1% on the day. So who knows? Investment companies may find themselves in positive territory for the week. But in terms of the sector average discount, it has actually widened out again. So started the week about 8.8%. And again, at the close of Thursday, at least, uh, it was sitting about 9.9%. And that's actually quite a wide level for the for the average discount. You go back a, a year or so, in 2021, it averaged 3.1%. It's averaging 5.7% so far this year. But there has been a relentless derating of the investment companies sector. But across the wider markets, well, the story hasn't really changed that much. Recession seems to be the word on many commentators' lips, particularly in the UK. We've seen pressure on the Bank of England to increase interest rates to curb inflation. We saw inflation hit 9.1% this week, which is a 40-year high. Also pressure on the Bank of England uh, to kind of prop up the pound. Sterling's obviously been hit by what we've seen and apparently economic confidence among British households has fallen to the lowest level on record. But this is obviously not just a UK story. And in fact, Goldman Sachs doubled the likelihood in their commentary this week of a US recession over the next 12 months. I think they increased the probability from about 15% to 30%. And there's obviously been a lot of coverage of Jerome Powell's testimony to Congress. And he's made it clear that there is an unconditional commitment to bring down inflation. So the themes of the year not disappearing yet. But I guess it's not surprising given the kind of relentless set of headlines we've had about inflation and uh, the outlook generally being pretty gloomy that we should be seeing this kind of change in sentiment a little bit in the last few weeks from people worrying so much about high inflation to starting to worry about uh, what the medicine for high inflation would do, which in other words bring about uh, a slowdown in economic growth. And that does seem to be what's What's happening, certainly expectations and uh, some survey information is certainly pointing to a sharp slowdown and a possibility of a recession, uh, which uh, if the Fed keeps to its guns and people do speculate whether it will or not, that could easily happen, if only not necessarily by design, but possibly by accident, just because of the knock-on effects. And of course, in this country, you've also had a rail strike, a series of rail strikes this week, which is about pay, and that in turn could stoke inflation a little bit further. So there's certainly plenty to worry about. So perhaps in that context, the uh, the market uh, steadying a little bit is not such bad news. Bond yields have come down a little bit as well. Um, in terms of the investment trust discount, though, I mean, 9%, that's sort of getting back to the kind of level it used to be at on average when I started following investment trusts about 30 years ago. We have seen a big change in the last few years, partly because of the change in the composition of the investment trust sector, but also just a, a general um, trend towards lower discounts. And uh, perhaps you just remind us why you think that's happened and why it might now be reversing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And again, just to kind of turn the clock back a year or two at the start of 2020, we saw the sector average discount around about 1% or so. Um, and during that year, we did see it jump out to about 22% during that period of extreme market volatility in March April time, and then it did recover. But yes, to see it kind of drift out to 9% is unusual, particularly for a couple of reasons. Certainly over the last 20 years, we've seen many more investment trust companies deploy buyback programs or tender offers, i.e. take active measures to tackle their discounts. In addition to that, we've seen a real change in the composition of the investment companies sector as well. So far more uh, alternative income asset classes. Obviously, you and I spend an awful lot of time talking about infrastructure, renewable energy infrastructure plays. And these have invariably proven quite popular and many of which still trade on premium ratings. So, I mean, when I talk about the sector average discount, about 9% or so, that's everything included. But within that, obviously, there is a huge dispersion of ratings from, you know, you still find a number on premium ratings and others on very extended ratings. So you look at the listed private equity sector at the moment, 
uh, and many of those names are trading out around about 40% discounts, whereas at the start of the year, that'll be closer to, to say, 10% discount. And uh, smaller companies as well, of which there are quite a significant number, smaller company trusts in the, the equity part of the investment trust universe, they've also seen uh, quite significant uh, discount widening, I think, and uh, also one or two of the specialist growth areas as well, like you mentioned private equity, but growth capital and biotech and things like that, they've seen some discount movements there too. Well, we'll have to see. It tends to happen during a bear market. So if we are headed for an even worse bear market than we've seen already, then uh, we'd have to probably expect to see a little bit further softening in discounts. Would that be the case, do you think, Simon? Or do you think there's a natural limit now to how far the average discount might fall? Yeah, it's always a possibility. I mean, look, a number of investment trust companies do have discount targets. They have levels that they do try to protect. For other investment companies, it's just impossible by nature of their asset class. So obviously, if they're invested in illiquid underlying assets, to deploy uh, you know, an active buyback program or, or regular tender offer becomes very problematic. But again, you know, looking at history, looking at the patterns of the past, certainly around the level that we're at at the moment, so 9%, we haven't seen it go too far wider than that overall, unless in extreme periods of volatility. So I talked about March, April 2020, where we can understand that you know, everything fell at that stage quite dramatically. Again, the global financial crisis, going back to 2008, a similar story. But on a kind of prolonged basis, this would seem quite rare. I mean, you would expect corporate activity of one sort or another to kick in uh, if those discounts remained at those kind of levels. And of course, a discount is not just a problem, it's also an opportunity. So there may be opportunities uh, at the right moment in the cycle. When the discounts do widen, there is a natural kind of corrective mechanism as well, because at some point there will be buyers coming in to attracted by those discounts, assuming that the earnings and the asset values are not going to get pummeled by a, a really bad recession. So always interesting in this sector. Let's start then with a bit of housekeeping on the corporate activity front. A couple of things here I think we just need to catch up with. So um, let's kick off with the LXI REIT, ticker LXI, the uh, commercial property trust. Tell us what they've uh, been saying this week about their merger. Yeah, so the news this week is that shareholders in LXI REIT have approved the merger with Secure Income REIT. Over 99% or 99.9% of votes were cast in favour. Basically, this merger is going to happen. It's on an NAV for NAV basis. Uh, that's as at the end of March. And the merger will become effective on the 6th of July. Okay, so that's gone through very smoothly. Uh, all the shareholders on both sides happy with that one. And just remind us what's happened to the share prices of those two uh, trusts as a result of this proposed merger. I think there was a bit of a windfall for the shareholders of uh, Secure Income REIT. Would that be uh, fair to say? Yeah, no, I think that's right. They certainly benefited. We saw that in the immediate aftermath of the news of the proposal of the merger. Uh, LXI REIT, a slightly different story. The initial reaction was, was slightly negative. We saw the share price weaken. But actually, at the moment, uh, it's it's rebounded at the moment. I've got it on about a 2% discount, so a very small discount to its NAV. Okay, so that's been a good example, I think, of a murder that seems to satisfy most shareholders on both sides. And let's talk about Warehouse REIT next. They've made an announcement as well. This is ticker WHR. That's right. So they'd actually told us back in May that they were looking to move from at the moment the company, the investment company is traded on AIM, they're looking to move across to the premium segment of the main market of the London Stock Exchange. So that process is now in train. And the idea is that on the 12th of July, warehouse REIT will become uh, part of the main market. Why does that matter? Well, what it means is that it becomes open to inclusion within the FTSE all share indices, which given that it's got a market cap of over 600 million pounds would assume that it's got a good chance of being promoted into the, the FTSE small cap. Indeed. And uh, that is where a couple of its uh, like-minded peers already operate, I think. Uh, well, Tritax Big Box is definitely uh, in the main market and in the indices. What about uh, Urban Logistics, which is the other one? Where do they trade? Um, so Urban Logistics REIT made the same move, funnily enough, and it's actually a member of the mid-cap, the FTSE 250 now. Okay, so that's been a popular sector. Presumably the reason why both those trusts have done that is to get uh, greater liquidity and so on and, and to make it easier to raise money, as uh, Warehouse REIT says it may be wanting to do. Would that be right? Yeah, they said as part of their announcement this week that they intend to implement a 12-month placing programme for up to 175 million ordinary shares, though that is subject to shareholder approval at a general meeting on the 11th of July. Okay, well, talking about fundraising then, that's uh, one to look out for. 
But uh, let's move on and talk about other fundraising news this week. And again, there is still some fundraising news, uh, despite the choppy markets we've had. And it's mostly concentrated in the alternative asset sector, as always. So we're going to kick off with Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, ticker D-O-R-E. We said not so long ago they were looking to raise some money. How did they get on? They got on well, actually. They raised £53 million. Actually, they were looking to raise £50 million. So they exceeded that target. Uh, These were new shares issued at 111p, which represents a 2% premium to their NAV at the end of March. And actually, the raise represents about 35% of the fund's share capital prior to the fundraising. So it takes the market cap of the fund over £200 million. It's worth noting that it was conditional on shareholder approval. And basically, the proceeds will be used to repay the credit facility, which is about £17 million or so at the moment, and invest in a near-term pipeline. But a good result for Downing. They came to the market towards the end of 2020, actually, raising about £123 of their IPO. Okay, so that's in the renewable infrastructure space. Obviously, that's been very popular recently. Let's talk about Foresight Sustainable Forestry, Slightly different vehicle, this one, uh, ticker FSF. They said not so long ago they were looking to raise some money. And uh, how did they get on? Did they say how much they were trying to raise last time? I'm not sure they did. No, I don't think they actually put a number on it. They talked about a pipeline of £77 million at the time they announced they were looking to raise money. But they have been successful. They will be issuing new shares. They've raised £45 million. The issue price is 107p. Those new shares start trading on Tuesday of next week. And just going back to the original announcement, they were looking to raise this money. Uh, Blackmead Infrastructure, which is part of Foresight Inheritance Tax Fund, so kind of like an in-house fund, had committed 30% of that fundraising total. So kind of backed by in-house money as well. Okay, so both those trusts, I'm sure, are still trading at premiums. Is that right? That would be logical, given that they've just succeeded in raising money. Would that be right? Yeah, so I've got uh, Downing Renewables on a 2% premium at the moment uh, at 111p, which is in line with the level that they raised their shares. And Foresight Sustainable Forestry, I've got them sitting on a premium rating of 9% actually. So they're on a slightly 107p. But again, the share price in line with their issue price. Okay. Let's move on then and talk about Impact Healthcare REIT. This is another alternative asset trust specialising in, uh, obviously, in healthcare property. Ticker IHR. Now, what are they uh, proposing to do? Yeah, they're looking to raise new money at an issue price of 117p. That represents a 2% premium to their NAV at the end of March and about a 5% discount or so to their share price, their closing share price, on the day before the announcement. So basically, Impact Healthcare is in advanced negotiations to acquire six portfolios, which consist of 27 separate care homes. That's got a total value of £169 million. Uh, So obviously, they'll be hoping that this placing will kind of take them a long way towards that kind of total. The placing is expected to close on the 5th of July, which is, I think, a week on Tuesday, uh, the results will be announced on the following day. And assuming that's successful, the new shares will begin to trade on the 8th of July. So this is a very small sector that specialise in these uh, healthcare and, and uh, properties. Uh, there's Impact Healthcare and there's Target Healthcare. How do those two compare at the moment? How are they doing in terms of scale and yield, would we say? So they're both trading on premium ratings. I've got Target Healthcare on about a 1% premium, uh, Impact Healthcare a little bit ahead of that, probably about 6 or 7% or so at the moment. In terms of size, Target Healthcare is a little bit larger. It's been around slightly longer than Impact. So in terms of market caps, Impact stands about £450 million or so, uh, whereas Target Healthcare is about £690 million. Yield-wise, not an awful lot in it. Probably impact, I've got it on a historic base, about 5.6 compared with 6.1 for target healthcare. And in terms of the performance record, well, that's interesting, actually, because on a share price total return on a five-year basis, uh, impact healthcare has returned 51%, and yet target healthcare, I've got on a 25% uh, total return. Right, so they have the slightly better track record at this stage anyway. Interesting, and it's still a decent-looking yield between 5 and 6% for these two. Let's move on then and talk about some results, and we're going to kick off by talking about an investment trust that we used to know as BMO Global Smaller Companies, ticker BGSC. They produce some annual results, um, but I think, as we mentioned before, they're changing their name to uh, sound a little bit grander, perhaps. 
well, they've lost the BMO. They're going from BMO Global Smaller Companies to Global Smaller Companies Trust. So hopefully they didn't pay too much to their marketing team to uh, come up with that. But these were annual results for the year ended 30th of April. They generated an NEV total return was down about 0.2%. And that compared with a decline of 3.2% for their benchmark, which is a hybrid, about 30% UK small cap and 70% global small cap ex-UK. In share price terms, actually that was down about 6.4% on a total return basis. Obviously, uh, the discount widened a little during the year. But the NAV outperformance uh, was attributed to the manager's conservative approach to stock selection and also some elevated takeover activity. So uh, within the portfolio of 17 holdings received bid approaches, uh, which is quite a few, but it's worth remembering. I seem to remember they've got about 190 holdings in this fund, so it's a pretty diversified portfolio. But even so, 17 uh, is not insignificant. And outperformance came from their UK sub-portfolio, part of the reason for the from those takeover bids, and also North America as well, whereas Europe, Japan, and the rest of the world are underperformed slightly. In terms of the revenue per share, that came in at 1.82p. Their total dividend was 1.84p, so it was slightly uncovered. But that represented the 52nd consecutive annual increase, so very much an AIC dividend hero. But as you say, the name has changed. I should actually, sorry, I'm slightly inaccurate there. It is the Global Smaller Companies Trust. I missed the definitive article. It is. They're making a pitch for for exclusivity here. Yeah, exactly. The Global Smaller Companies Trust. (laughs) Exactly. The, I've done them a disservice there. And, and that's a reflection of the fact that Columbia Threadneedle acquired part of the BMO business uh, during this year. But it's, it's no change, really. I mean, Peter Ewans is the long-standing uh, manager of this one. I think he started about July 2005. And it's, as I said, it's, it has that UK weighting. So it sits about 27% or so now, but also uses collectives. So 19% of the portfolio is actually invested through collectives, i.e. funds. Well, I can't resist this opportunity. Obviously, if it's had 52 years of consecutive annual increase in dividends, in asking you, you know, it's had a number of name changes over the years. So how did it start out and uh, how did it get to where it is now as the Global Smaller Companies Trust? Well, when I started covering the sector, <laughs> it was the F&C, Global Smaller Companies Trust, I seem to remember. And I'm sure it has a, a long history before that. And I can't tell you off the top of my head what it started life as. So it went from F&C, to, well, when BMO took over F&C, they took over this trust and now it's gone to Colombia, so there's been a kind of transition along the way to this, uh, as I said, rather grand-sounding final destination. Um, in terms of performance, though, in its peer group, I mean, I'm not sure that it can necessarily claim to be the best-performing global smaller companies trust. I don't wish to be unkind to them, but uh, how does its recent track record look compared to some others in that sector? No, I think that's probably a fair point, to be honest. I mean, if you look at that global smaller companies peer group, I mean, I've got the Global Smaller Companies Trust up 11% share price total return over five years. It's done better in NAV terms, up 25%. But that's behind Edinburgh Worldwide, which is the Bailey Gifford vehicle. That's up 46% in NAV terms over five years and up 39% in share price terms. And actually, North Atlantic Smaller Companies, which is Christopher Mills Holdings, and to be fair, is is a very different vehicle. But that has the bragging rights on both of them. That's up 62% in NAV total return terms over five years and 44% in share price terms over the same period. But they've all been hammered in the last year, basically. I mean, they've all had a tough time in the last year, I guess you could say. Certainly in share price terms, discounts have widened. So maybe the uh, sort of flat NAV total return for that year wasn't so bad, I guess, in a relative context for the Global Smaller Companies Trust. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, look, over the last six months, I mean, Edinburgh Worldwide is down 43% in share price terms. Despite that, that its long-term record still remains strong. North Atlantic Smaller Companies down 21% and the Global Smaller Companies Trust only down 19%. So they've all been hit, but the Bailey Gifford Fund has been hit harder. Okay. And as we said, the name is changing or has changed, in fact, I think. Is that fair? It has changed. It changed with effect from uh, Tuesday. Okay. So let's move on and talk about Monk's Investment Trust. We mentioned Bailey Gifford. This is obviously one of the Bailey Gifford flagship trusts, Global Equity Trust. MNKS is the ticker. They've had annual results for the year to the 30th of April in this case. That's right. And a tough year for Monk's, actually. The NAV total return was down about 18.9%. That compared with a rise of 6.1% for the FTSE World Index. In share price terms, they did a little bit worse, actually, down 24.6%. 
and NAV underperformance was very much attributed to early stage growth companies and also Chinese businesses as well. So just to put some names around that, key detractors included Farfetch, Peloton, Alibaba, uh, Metion, Naspers and Process. But the manager, who's a gentleman called Spencer Adair, noted that portfolio companies are continuing to perform well operationally and are financially robust. So they put some numbers around that. So if you exclude the private companies in the portfolio, and we'll come on and just talk about that in a second, but around 13% of the listed portfolio is currently loss-making, i.e. the vast majority is profitable. Uh, the manager hasn't made that many changes to the portfolio. I mean, he has very much a long-term investment approach and turnover came in about 11% during the year, although 11 new names were added to the list. Gearing stood about 7% at the end of April. It's also worth noting as well, actually, they've been quite active on the buyback front. So in that particular 12-month period, they bought back 8.8 million shares. That was equivalent to 3.7% of the share capital, and it cost them £98 million. And certainly when I last looked, Monks had bought back shares worth more than uh, any other investment company so far this year to date. Yeah, well, that's encouraging to see that happen, of course, because it's one thing to talk about protecting uh, a discount or doing buybacks, and uh, uh, it does seem... uh, quite common that when markets are tough, a number of boards sort of seem to run away from their commitments. And that's something which is uh, not a good thing at all. So well done to them for that. So let's move on and talk about a couple of trusts now in the flexible investment sector. Those two were in the global sector or global and global smaller company sector. Now let's talk about Hansa Investment Company. This has uh, two share classes, as I recall, ticker H-A-N and H-A-N-A. Annual results to the 31st of March in this case. That's right. And they generated an NAV total return of 5.1%. That compared to a rise of 12.7% for the MSCI or Country World Index and a 7% increase in UK CPI, in other words, inflation. Share price returns not quite as good, actually. So the ordinary share class was up 1.8% and actually the A shares were flat. And just to differentiate between those two share classes, the ordinary shares are voting, the A shares are non-voting shares, and there's various historical reasons why that's the case. The dividend has been maintained at 3.2p, and the strategy there is that um, the board want to maintain it at that level until it's fully covered by net revenue income. But this investment company is a little bit different. As you mentioned, it sits in the flexible investment subsector, and it has many of the attributes of, of a family office. So the majority of the portfolio, at least, is managed on a kind of quite diversified basis, looking to eke out real returns over the long term. But in addition to that, it does have a holding in a company, a listed company called Ocean Wilson's Holdings, which in turn has an investment in a Brazilian company called Wilson's Sons. And actually, those holdings perform quite well in the year. So uh, stripping out Ocean Wilson's Holdings for a second, the gross total return was 1.1% as the various different silos within the kind of more absolute return orientated element of the portfolio came in with decent returns to a varying basis. But Ocean Wilson's holdings, that was up 24.7% in the period. And that was a reflection of the share price of Wilson Sons up nearly 78% in sterling terms. As I mentioned, it's a Brazilian listed company. Overall, the investment team, and there's a chap called Alec Letchfield of Hansa Capital Partners, who's responsible for this one. He took a slightly more defensive position over the year, although the equity positioning was largely maintained. And if anyone's interested in how a manager kind of addresses some of the issues that were seen across the marketplace, I would uh, suggest they read Alex's uh, investment commentary as part of the report, uh, because it's certainly very comprehensive in how he's trying to approach the markets at the moment. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the Brazilian kind of wedge of this particular trust has been a bit of a burden for a while, a bit of a headwind. But in the last year or so, it's actually turned into a real strength, hasn't it? Because Brazil has done very well, as we heard. And this particular company has done exceptionally well over that period. Well, before we compare this to some others, let's move on and talk about Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust, ticker MAVT. And this report covers the year to the 30th of April. That's right. And they generated an NAV total return up 0.9%. That compared with a return of 15% for their benchmark, which actually is CPI plus 6%, so inflation plus 6%, which is quite a tough benchmark in this particular year. Uh, the share price total return came in at 1.5%. And I seem to remember that they pursue a zero discount policy in this particular investment trust. But they have been buying back shares to ensure that their rating remains around their NAV. So they bought back 4.2 million shares for about £8 million during this period, though they did issue 0.2 million shares 
and raise some additional capital. Uh, they also increased their dividend for the year as well. That grew from 6.72p to 7.2. And there is a commitment to at least maintain that 7.2p dividend for their 2023 financial year. So these two vehicles are, are very, very different. I mean, one of the things about the flexible investment sector is that there's a really wide divergence of different approaches in there. And I noted, I just noted in passing that the uh, the global sector, which had done pretty well before that, is off on average uh, quite significantly over the last 12 months. Whereas the flexible investment sector is, according to the IOC numbers anyway, over the last year is averaging about a flat share price return against 25% uh, down for the global equity trust. But there's a wide variety of experiences there. And I guess uh, Hansa and Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trusts are, are pretty much at different extremes, aren't they? And that's reflected in the way that they trade. I mean, Hansa doesn't seem to worry about the discount, for example. No, that's right. I mean, Hansa is on a big discount. I've got the ordinary shares on about a 35% discount at the moment. And actually, the A share is probably around about the same level. And that's broadly in line with the 12-month average for both those share classes. As I mentioned, Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust has pursued a zero discount policy. So I've got them on a small premium at the moment, about 1% or 2%. And again, they've averaged, funnily enough, around NAV over the previous 12 months. And this Momentum Multi-Asset Value, it's got a good long-term track record, I think, but it's quite small by comparison with uh, most of the others in this particular sector. Would I be right about that? Yeah, that's right. So it's got a market cap of about £54 million at the moment. So it is a little bit on the small side. I mean, it is you know, differentiated by its dividend in as much as a number of the flexible investment funds do have a dividend, but not all by any means. And Momentum has got a historic dividend yield of 3.9% at the moment. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about some UK trust. Always interesting to talk about UK trust. A lot of people were saying a year ago that UK equities are the place you should be looking at because they looked relatively cheap compared to the rest of the world. Well, let's see how that's worked out. We've got BlackRock Income and Growth Investment Trust, ticker BRIG, first of all. They've had some interim results for the six months to the 30th of April. That's right. And they saw an NAV total return up 4.5% during that time. And that was an outperformance. Their benchmark, which is the FTSE All Share, was up 3.1%. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually. They were up 0.3% as their discount widened from 6% to 10%. Uh, though they did buy back some shares. So a relatively small investment trust company, this one. I've got a market cap of about £36 million, and so it's probably off the radar of most people. They do pay a dividend, so they declared an interim dividend of 2.6p in the period, uh, and that compares with revenue per share of 3.53p. So in other words, the dividend was covered by revenue in that time. But it's been just over 10 years since BlackRock were appointed as manager of this one, Adam Avigdori and David Goldman. And again, my recollection is that for a period of time, they pursued a zero discount policy as well, though um, that seems to have uh, disappeared a number of years ago. As I said, they're on about uh, a 9% discount or so at the moment. Okay, well, let's next talk about Henderson Opportunities Trust, ticker HOT, H-O-T. It's obviously a larger trust managed by Janice Henderson, obviously. And they've had interim results for the same period, six months to the 30th of April. That's right. And they've ended up in negative territory. Their NAV total return was down 8.7% compared with a rise of 3.2% for their benchmark. And actually, they made the point that their peer group average return is down 13.2%. In share price terms, share price total return down 9.5% as their discount widened out slightly. But the underperformance was partially attributed to uh, being overweight smaller companies and also because of the commodity exposure in the portfolio. So James Henderson and Laura Fall, uh, who we've talked about on any number of occasions, they're also responsible for Lowland and they run the investment portfolio of Law Debenture, but they also run this one as well. It's worth noting that it's quite a diversified portfolio, about 100 stocks or so. And we've always talked about this as being James Henderson unconstrained. So if you look at the kind of the largest holding that you'll see names, familiar names such as Shell, HSBC, Anglo-American, but then they do go all the way down the market cap size scale. So there are some genuinely uh, small companies in the portfolio as well. Indeed. And as I recall, they have a policy really of being geared almost all the time. Isn't that right? So that tends to accentuate the movements in uh, in up and down markets, as I recall them saying. They normally have a level of at least 10% gearing, I think, or something like that. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I mean, I've got them on a, a, about a 15, 16% gearing level at the moment. But yeah, I think I think that's right. I think you can expect that gearing will be deployed. 
with regards to this one. So you're going to get more volatility as a result, for sure. OK, let's next talk about Rockwood Strategic, ticker RKW, a name we've got to get used to because it used to be called something else. They've had full year results to 31st of March, and it's been uh, quite an eventful year for them, I think it's fair to say. So the figures may need some uh, explanation or, or analysis, I guess. So tell us how they performed over this full year. Yeah, no, obviously we have talked about this one again on a number of occasions, but the numbers are the NAV total return was up 27.5%. That compared to a rise of 3.2% for the FTSE small cap ex-investment companies index. In share price terms, they came in at 22.2%. Now, it's probably worth noting at the start here is that during this period, they changed their strategy. So I think at the start of this period, they were on a kind of realisation tack. It had moved across. Um, in fact, they for a period of three phases. I think they were kind of ongoing investment. Then they went to a realization tack, and then they moved back to a kind of ongoing basis uh, just shortly after the period end. So, what drove that NAV performance? Well, they actually realized quite a number of their key holdings, names such as Orgean, RPS, National World, Universe Group, and Ted Baker. They saw some losses on disposal as well, fulcrum utility services, and space and people. But at the end of March, they had net assets of £41 million. That included £11 million in cash. In fact, the portfolio only comprised of about nine holdings at that stage. But they returned £25 million to shareholders for a B-share scheme and a tender offer. And that was part of their realisation phase. And Harwood Capital was appointed investment manager in October last year. And actually, Richard Staveley is now the lead manager. But shareholders have approved this revised investment policy. And the idea is going forward that they'll have about between five and 10 core holdings and then between 15 and 25 smaller holdings. And the board is also exploring a move from AIM to the main market of the London Stock Exchange. So we've often talked about the impact of sort of randomness and timing and so on. It's probably quite a good time to be having quite a lot of cash in your portfolio. However you got there, you'd have to think that there's going to be some opportunities coming along as the markets sell off. So it'll be interesting to watch how they do, whether they've got a chance to uh, really capitalise on that uh, going forward. What do you think the sort of city's view of uh, this one is? Obviously, it's small at the moment, but uh, there are obviously some backers who think that it could uh, become a reasonable size and become more interest to the wider institutional market. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is small at the moment. It's got a market cap of £35 million. So that means it's probably off the radar of many investors. And also there's some quite big holdings through people connected to Harwood Capital, in other words, the investment manager themselves. So I think there's a kind of you know transition period almost here where you know the manager has to deploy that capital. And, and certainly judging by the investment manager's report, he's quite excited about the opportunity to get to do that at this moment in time. Uh, and then start, you know, building the track record, although it's worth noting uh, Richard Stavey has been involved in this one before uh, he moved across from Gresham House. So I think it'd be very much get the money to work and go out and tell people about what they intend to do with it over the medium and long term and then look to move that rating in, ideally, which might be tricky in these current market conditions. But clearly, as I said, it's too small for many people at the moment. They'll be keen to get that onto a kind of premium rating and then enable it to grow. Yeah, I think that means it's uh, probably one that one should be, uh, if you're interested in small cap and uh, specialist trusts of this nature, then uh, it might be worth keeping an eye on that one to see how well they do, starting from where they are starting today. Let's move on then, talk about some overseas results. Well, we've got another mixed bag here. We've got JP Morgan Japan Small Cap Growth and Income, ticker JSGI. That doesn't sound like a particularly good place to be in Japan and small cap. We know that's taken a bit of a beating, but how did these guys do in their year to 31st of March? Yeah, no, it's been a tough period, actually. So the NAV total return was down 24.6%. That compared with a decline of 8.1% for the benchmark. In share price terms, not quite as bad as NAV, actually down 23.3% as the discount narrowed slightly. But the underperformance, the NAV underperformance was attributed to the focus on quality and growth while markets rotated towards lower quality cyclical companies and also gearing detracted as well. I think that stood about 6% or so at the end of the year. They've also announced a new lead manager, Mayako Yurabi, a name I've obviously mispronounced, uh, is taking responsibility for this one. Okay, let's move on and talk about Montanaro European smaller companies. We talked about Montanaro UK smaller companies the other day. Ticker MTE. They've had annual results for the uh, year to the 31st of March. And uh, how did they get on in comparison? So these results, they outperformed in this period. So the NAV total return came in at 8.4%, so positive. 
and that compared with 3.8% for their benchmark, the MSCI Europe X UK small cap index. Uh, in share price terms, not quite as good, actually, up 4.8% as the shares were derated slightly. But um, interesting story. So the first nine months of the financial year, in other words, to the end of 2021, were, you know, to use their terminology, exceptionally strong. And that was a reflection of the fact that the bias, the emphasis on high quality growth companies did particularly well. However, in the final quarter, so the three months to the end of March, this trend sharply reversed. And actually, if you look at the performance of this particular investment trust year to date, I mean, the share price is off about 45% in that period in the NAV terms down 35%. So it has gone into rapid reverse. George Cook is the manager of this one. And as I kind of mentioned, there is an emphasis on what they deem to be high quality growth companies. So if you look at where the portfolio is at the moment, about 28% uh, is in IT, uh, certainly was at the end of May, and about 19% in healthcare. And they've got a big bet on Swedish companies as well. So um, certainly enjoyed a strong period of returns in calendar year 2021. But it's been a tougher story this year. Yes, I mean, it's an interesting story across that whole sector, European smaller companies, because I'm, again, just looking at the figures, the AIC figures, I mean, over 10 years, despite what's happened this year, they've all got very, very strong performance indeed, you know, 200, 300%, that sort of thing, over 10 years. And that's despite having taken a real beating in the last six months, as you say. So uh, it's very much the kind of trust you want to be in at the right time, if you can, if you can manage that. Um, but the long-term returns have been good, and no doubt they'll be emphasizing that when they talk to shareholders in future. But it has been pretty brutal out there. Let's talk about Utilico Emerging Markets, ticker UEM. They're obviously a specialist emerging market trust. Tell us how they've done by contrast. So these were annual results for the year ended 31st of March. They generated an LEV total return up 14.9%, and that compared with a decline of 6.9% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. In share price terms, they do even better, actually. The total return share price came in at 176 uh, and that was a reflection of the fact that discount narrowed in the period. But the NAV outperformance was put down to the fact that we saw a market rotation away from high-growth technology stocks. And it's probably worth pausing there just to remind people that this, as you say, is a very specialist emerging market place. There's a real focus on infrastructure utility and, and related sectors, basically. And income has always been a bit of a part or kind of an important part of the story. So dividends per share totaled 8p in the year. That was up 2.9% year on year. And revenue earnings per share came in at 8.2p. And that was up year on year as well. They also kind of ran through where they were in terms of Russia. They had one small holding about 0.8%, which unsurprisingly has been written down to nil and unlisted investments accounted for about 8% of the portfolio at the end of March. So it's really not very meaningful to compare it to uh, other emerging market trusts uh, for that reason, or indeed, you could argue to the emerging markets index itself. But uh, anyway, they've done reasonably well, which is uh, no doubt a source of satisfaction to them, whereas a number of other emerging market trusts have been taking a bit of a beating as well recently. Let's talk about Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust next. Again, we've got a real mixed bag in here. Let's talk about them. Remember, we talked about them earlier for a different reason. They've had some financial results from 9th of April 2021, which is when they came to market, I think, to the 31st of December. So already six months out of date. But tell us for what it's worth, what uh, what those numbers showed. Yeah, I think quite a lot of this, the story's moved on. And just to remind people, this is the investment company that we saw half the board resign uh, only months after the launch because of the slow deployment of capital. So in terms of the period that you just mentioned, the NAV total return was down about 0.6% or so. But it's probably more interesting to kind of focus on the update they gave. So as of the 31st of May, their total commitments have risen to around about £20 million. Just to remind people, they raised £98 million at their IPO. And of that £20 million, about £16 million has been deployed. Despite that slow progress, the board, or what remains of them, expects the fund to be fully deployed by the end of this year, this calendar year, or early next year. Though, as previously announced, the initial continuation resolution will be brought forward to February next year or even earlier if deployment has not been satisfactory from the completion of the strategic review, which I think we discussed back in April. So it's still on the watch list, I think, as far as the board is concerned. And again, they gave an update on the dividend and this wasn't a particular surprise. I think initially the intention was to pay a dividend of 3.5p uh, for their financial year 2022, but it won't be covered by earnings. And in fact, the board have decided not to pay a dividend 
in respect of the first quarter of 2022. So just a couple of points here. I mean, I guess if they were in an equity trust, they would be able to say that failure to deploy would turn out to be quite advantageous given what's happened to the markets in the last six months. But of course, they're not in that business. They're in uh, the renewable energy and energy efficiency game where that has been very popular. So they are behind the curve, if you like, in that area, I think. No doubt about it. Um, and what's happened to the discount of this one? I mean, do you think the market's sort of buying this new approach from the board? I mean, there is a continuation vote coming up, as you said, next year. But um, what's the verdict so far? Well, it's sitting on a 19% discount, which, you know, bearing in mind it only came to the market last year, is a bit of an oddity. Um, it's sitting with a market cap of £79 million. And, you know, this raises a few issues, not least the pattern that we've seen with these new funds that have come to the market is that they've kind of got their capital deployed, they've built a track record, they've paid their initial dividends, and then they've come back and raised additional capital in order to, to bulk up and appeal to a, a wider investment or investor base. In this particular instance, that looks a bit of a stretch from here, because obviously, as you mentioned, they're behind the curve in terms of capital deployment. So I think there's a question for uh, existing shareholders is, is is this fund ever going to be able to grow? Because if not, it feels a little on the subscale size, to be honest, with a market cap below £100 million. So certainly a lot of work to be done still. Yes, I mean, to trade on a 20% discount when most of your assets are in cash is not exactly a vote of confidence, I'd say. Let's talk about GCP infrastructure, ticker GCP. I wonder how they came up with that one. And they've had half year results to 31st of March 2022. Yeah. Um, in that six month period, they generated a total shareholder return of 13.7%. So, what's going on here? Well, they benefited from a reduction in their discount rate, also an increase in power price forecast, which is obviously a familiar story across the infrastructure and particularly the renewable energy infrastructure space and also an increase in inflation assumptions as well. They paid 3.5p of dividends over the period, and that was covered 1.05 times on a loan interest accrued basis. And a little bit of activity, as you'd imagine. So over the period, £73 million worth of loans were extended. So it's worth probably just pausing at this stage and, and make it clear that this is infrastructure debt. So it's a, it's a specialist infrastructure fund. It's a bit different to uh, a number of its wider peer group. But yes, yeah, some uh, portfolio activity, £110 million of loan repayments were received as well. Okay, but they do still benefit, as you say, from some of these uh, factors that are helping the underlying investments or the companies to which they are lending in terms of power price forecasts and so on. Interesting the way they work that out, the average discount rate coming down. Okay, interesting one. What kind of yield are you getting on that one? It's a, it's a debt investment trust, so you'd expect you get a decent kind of yield from that, would you not? Yeah, so I've got it on a 6.4% dividend yield on a historic basis at the moment. Let's talk next about Triple Point Energy Efficiency Infrastructure, TEEC. They've had annual results the 31st of March. And uh, how does this one do over the year? Yeah, there's a few things going on here, actually. So annual results to the end of March, as you mentioned, the NAV total return came in at 4.9%. So that was positive, though actually the NAV in capital terms was down about 1.4% due to payment of uncovered dividends and also as a result of slower than expected deployment offsetting some of the valuation uh, uplifts. So there are kind of echoes here of the experience of Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust. So the other thing to note as well that in terms of the capital commitments those come in about 100 million pounds or so which 55 million deployed. The IPO proceeds and this came to the market back in October 2020 they are now fully committed as well as the majority of their credit facility, which is about £40 billion or so. But they did also announce that they're looking to consult shareholders on amendments to their existing investment policy. And these amendments include expanding their investments into Europe, broadening the scope of the investment mandate to energy transition, and changing a few other bits and pieces as well. But they're looking to change the name of the fund. So at the moment, it's triple point energy efficiency infrastructure, and they're looking to move that to triple point energy transition, uh, which will have the ticker TENT, T-E-N-T. But that's all subject to shareholder approval, and that will be sought at an AGM in August. So what's going on here then? They're sort of fully committed, but they're trading on a discount. So presumably that suggests they're going to find funding on the existing mandate, not quite as easy perhaps as they would like. 
Well, are they jumping on another bandwagon here by going for energy transition? I seem to think that's quite a popular thing at the moment. Would that be a fair question to at least raise here? Well, they're on a discount of about 3% or so at the moment. So it is a discount, but it's a small discount, to be perfectly honest. They have been paying dividends, although not fully covered. So they've got a yield of about 6.1%, but their market cap stands about 90 million pounds. So they're a little bit on the small side, to be perfectly honest. They probably need to have a couple more capital raisings to really increase the opportunity set and increase their appeal to a wider investor base. But I think it's certainly fair to say that they have struggled to deploy their capital at the pace that they originally thought they would be able to manage. Um, it's not quite to the same level as Aquila Energy Efficiency, but it's certainly proven a little bit difficult. So on that basis, it probably does give them the benefit of the doubt. It probably makes sense to kind of broaden their investment policy. But, you know, certainly energy transition is one that is capturing the imagination of a number of investments. And obviously there are a few funds that do play to that theme at the moment. But it's like all these things, whenever an investment company or an investment team look to kind of broaden or change the mandate, it's really, do they have the experience? Do they have the knowledge? Do they have the contacts in that area to really, the theme may be good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the right investment team to exploit that theme. Yep. So again, that'll be one to watch when the AGM comes up, see whether the shareholders are behind them on that. So let's move on now. We'll finish off with a couple of uh, three. We've got three commercial property trusts to nip through. We've actually heard the NAVs for these ones, I think, in most cases. So this is just the annual results. So catching up with a bit more detail about their performance. Kicking off with AEW UK REIT. They've had annual results to the 31st of March. That's right. And in which time they saw an NAV total return of 29.7%. And in fact, in share price terms, uh, even stronger, actually up 53.6%. So a strong set of results. The property portfolio was valued about £240 million or so at the end of March. And that was across 36 properties. In terms of rent collection, uh, that stood at 98% for each quarter since March 2020. So that in itself is, is quite impressive. If you think back to what was going on during the early stages of the pandemic. And in this particular 12-month period, their EPRA earnings per share came in at 6.79p. So that was up year on year. Uh, it was 6.19p in the previous year. And they've declared dividends of 8p in respect of the year. And that was in line uh, with, with their target as well. Yeah, so it's an interesting one, this one, isn't it? Because they did very well through the pandemic and they specialise in smaller commercial property assets, uh, mainly uh, outside London, I think. And um, They've done very well. Not only do the shares trade well, but they also still pay a significant dividend as well. So it's a, they really have sort of been in the sweet spot, I guess. And the question will be, can they can they kind of keep up this rate of progress? I would say. So how how do they compare to the others in the sector in terms of uh, dividend and so on, dividend yield and so on? So all your observations are spot on. So I've got them on a, a yield on a historic basis of six point nine percent at the moment. We've got them in the kind of property UK commercial diversified subsector so names such as uk commercial property bmo commercial property names such as that sitting alongside it so they're at 6.9 percent the average for that subsector is probably about 5.1 percent or so at the moment so there is a premium there in terms of the rating i've got them on a three percent premium to their nav at the moment and there's not that many kind of mainstream commercial property funds uk commercial property funds you can say that for at the moment so again the average discount probably sits around about 17 percent or so at the moment yeah, has been an exceptional performance on, on all counts. Let's talk about Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust next, ticker SERE. They've had interim results to the 31st of March. That's right. And they saw their NAV per share down just slightly 0.2% in that time, though actually NAV total return came in at 5.5%. So obviously that reflects the dividends that they've paid. Their portfolio was valued at 248 million euros and actually saw like for like growth of 4% during that six month period. There's been a, a kind of key property that they've sold, a Parisian uh, office space, I seem to remember, and they've received 84% of the purchase price from that. There's a bit more to go. And in fact, I think they've declared a special dividend in respect of those proceeds. So the profit they've made on that Parisian property. But in terms of the dividends overall, they came in at 3.7 euro cents per share. And again, that special dividend of 4.75 euro cents per share. Uh, and ordinary dividends were 50% covered from the income received. Okay, and then let's talk about, well, we mentioned them before, Urban Logistics REIT. We said what they have done in terms of moving from AIM to the main market. What were their annual results like? Did they uh, do well for any new shareholders who joined them, having left AIM for the main market? 
Well, they seem to be a decent set of results. So these were annual results to the 31st of March. Their EPRA NTA, equivalent to NAV, came in and was up 23.9%. In fact, the total return came in at 29%. So at the end of March, their portfolio comprised 113 mid-box urban logistic assets. They were valued at just over a billion pounds. And the like-for-like valuation growth was up 25.4%, so quite a strong level. In terms of rents collected, that came in at 99.9%. So obviously there was just a very small slippage somewhere along the route. And then adjusted earnings per share came in at 6.71p, compared with total dividends of 7.6p declared in relation to the year. But yeah, absolutely right. As mentioned, this one moved from AIM to the main market in December and was included in the FTSE 250 index back in March. So I think the final question just about the property sector is, we're in a period of high inflation and we could be seeing a slowdown in economic activity. Are those kind of typically conditions in which you would expect commercial property investment trusts to perform well or steadily or perhaps to uh, struggle a little bit? I think historically, you would expect commercial property to struggle in an economic downturn, to be perfectly honest, though I'm sure if we were talking to people in the property sector, they'd say yes, but you've got to differentiate about the types of property. Obviously, some are far more commercially sensitive or economically sensitive than others. So, you know, we talked about the healthcare funds. I mean, you know, in theory, at least there should be no uh, economic sensitivity there. Conversely, if you're looking at industrial office, whatever it might be, or even retail, though not many of them have massive exposure to retail at the moment, um, that might hurt you a little bit more. So certainly it could be a difficult period. And frankly, the ratings on the more diversified UK commercial property funds probably reflect that. So as I mentioned, you know, 17% or so overall at the moment, though we've, we've seen a number in the 20s or even on the 30% discount ranges. Uh, and that's certainly wider than it would have been at the start of this year. All right. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you are a subscriber to the Moneymaker Circle, we do have a profile this week of Impacts Environmental. And we also have an interesting article about uh, reflecting one uh, seasoned investor's view of private equity and what he's thinking about it now, having seen uh, the sector struggle a little bit in the last few weeks. So that might be of interest to some, as long with my own comments. But uh, Simon, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. And uh, as always, there'll be something good to talk about. Excellent. Sounds good. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.